Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everyone. It is Wednesday night, and that means it is time for another episode of Friends and Fiction. We are so looking forward to tonight. We have such a great cast of characters. So let's get started. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we all get to talk to Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meisner. Yes, all three of them are right together <laughs> on the same place in the same show with us about their new novel, When We Had Wings. And then, as if it gets any better than that, on the second half of the show, we will be talking to Santa Montefiore about her new novel, An Italian Girl in Brooklyn. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Ariel's, Christina's, Susan's, and Santa's books, and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And while we're here talking about books, I mean, we're always here talking about books, <laughs> don't forget to check out our Friends and Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa. This club is run by our friends, Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, otherwise known as PB&J. They do so many fun things over there on their separate page, from happy hours with Ron Block, where you get the inside scoop on books coming out and hot picks, to a monthly book pick and visit with an author. Join them November 21st, when they will be with our very own Kristen Hormel, discussing the new 10th anniversary edition of The Sweetness of Forgetting. We are so excited about our guests tonight, um, and we are pre-taping this amazing episode as the fab three authors of When We Had Wings are on the West Coast, and Santa is in England. So kudos to our Meg Walker for bridging an eight-hour time gap and finding a way to get all eight of us on the screen at the same time, as well as Sean and Meg, who are behind the scenes, keeping our run runaway train on the track as usual. So here we are in the same virtual space at the same time, so we could bring you this week's fabulous show. So shall we get to Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meisner, our first guests this evening? We should. Do. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> Ariel Lahan is a New York Times bestselling author of historical fiction. Her last novel, codename Helene, blew our socks off. Her books have been <laughs> translated into numerous languages and have been library reads, Indie Next, Costco, Amazon, Spotlight, and Book of the Month selections. Not jealous at all. She <laughs> lives in Nashville with her husband and her four sons. Yes, four, four sons. She's all at home. They're all at home. Like nobody's off yet. I don't know how but she's still writing these books. I know. It's amazing. She's a yeah. miracle. Christina McMorris is a New York Times bestselling author of two novellas and seven historical novels. Her novel, Sold on a Monday, has sold more than a million, million copies. With an M. Million. <laughs> she is the recipient of more than 20 national literary awards. And she previously hosted weekly TV shows for Warner Brothers and an ABC affiliate. She lives with her family in Oregon, and one of her sons made a salted caramel chocolate cake, which she shared on her Instagram feed this week. And I was like licking my phone. So I we got. Know. You think she'd send us some? If I was just going to say, you know, we accept we accept baked goods as a thank you for yeah, having people on the show, just in case that's of any interest to anybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Just saying. laughs> 
<laughs> Susan Meisner is a USA Today bestselling author of historical fiction. Her novels have been printed in 18 languages and include The Nature of Fragile Things, The Last Year of the War, and As Bright as Heaven. Susan is also a speaker and writing workshop leader with a background in community journalism. She attended Point Loma Nazarene University and lives in the Pacific Northwest with her husband and their yellow lab, Winston. And she has the cutest grandbabies you have ever seen. Well, almost. I was going to say, I, I beg to differ. I know, I beg to differ too, but they're, they're pretty. They're all cute. They're all, cute. all cute. right, Sean, could you bring our guests on? are so happy to have you and we miss you and welcome raise your hands for those who don't know ariel <laughs> christina Susan. okay we are so happy to have you so first off before we dive deeper we want you to tell us what this book is about and then our favorite question, which is what it's really about. So Ariel, why don't you tell us about the plot per se or what it's about? And then Susan and Christina, I'd love you to each tell us what you think it's really about. Ariel, you want to kick us off? Yes, of course. When We Had Wings is the story of three nurses, Eleanor, Penny, and Lita, who become fast friends in Manila leading up to the World War II. And for three and a half years during the Japanese occupation in the Philippines, these women are serving under combat conditions in various internment camps throughout the Philippines. It is a war story. It is a friendship story. And it is based on real history. There were real Army, Navy, and Filipina nurses who endured all of the things that happened in our novel. So, Christina, what do you think it's? really about what's really about well i'll mention too that that the reason why um that we were so excited to write about them is because they were dubbed the angels of baton mm -hmm. by the service mm -hmm. because they were so incredible at what they did and and that's why we have our title when we had wings mm -hmm. as far as what we really think it's about it's about spending time together <laughs> as you all know it's a good excuse to tour around the country together and that's have a fun. good reason that's yeah right. it's a very good uh, reason as far as the story, you know, I, I think that, um, as Ariel mentioned, it's a, it definitely is a friendship story. Um, more than anything, I saw it as a, a survival story yeah. and, a, and a, really a story about hope because, and that's why we all love writing about historical fiction, especially people that ordinary people who go through extraordinary times have incredible challenges that we can't really wrap our mind around today thankfully. And, um, and, and at the same time, we have parallels today, you know, with financial crisis and et cetera. And the, the fact that people can go through such hard times and come out the other side, I, we all love to think that it gives you hope and, and resiliency of what people are capable of. Yeah. Oh, I love that. How about you, Susan? Yeah, I echo exactly what Christina said about this book, um, kind of showing the reader what it can be like to endure something that you didn't think you had the metal or the experience, like you never would have guessed, I could never survive that. I could never do what they did. But these women, um, they, they were nurses, they were trained, they joined the Army, Navy, Nurse Corps. So it wasn't like they didn't have any military training at all, but they did not have combat training. They did not have survival training. They had not been trained for what they did. They um, were put into a crucible and while they were denied so many things, it, their conditions were so austere. You can't believe what they endured. You'll find out in the pages what they endured. We didn't make it's any of it stunning, up. Actually, yeah, it it's stunning, actually, Susan. It's stunning. And while most of the other prisoners just were merely surviving, they were surviving the same way, but they were also still nursing. They still were nursing. They were still doing what they'd been sent to the islands to do, and that is take care of people. They never stopped doing that, which is amazing to me. Yeah, I love it. Just what an extraordinary story. And, I, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, people ask me all the time, and I'm sure they ask the three of you also, since you write World War II, like, is there ever going to be an end to these World War II stories? There are so many more stories to tell. So, I mean, it's amazing to come upon stories like this that that we don't know yet. So um, I'm very glad you told it. 
Speaking of that, let's begin at the beginning. So as you mentioned, this multi-layered novel is told through these three different nurses' points of view. Um, you know, and they all meet at the Army, Navy Club in Manila thinking, oh, this is going to be such an easy assignment. But obviously there would be no story if that was true. Um, <laughs> so I would love to talk to the three of you briefly about exactly how the book came to be. Susan, can you talk to us a little bit about the origin of the idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had been approached by a publisher, Harper Muse, to collaborate on a World War II novel. That was the only parameter they gave us is they wanted us to write it and they wanted it to be somewhere uh, around the World War II era. And so we jumped on the chance to write together. We're good friends and we enjoy each other's work. We thought we'd make a good team and we we, we are a great team. So what, what we had to do next then was choose an idea. And we wanted to find something that hadn't already been written about many times over. Because even though the World War II is a giant genre, so much of it has been told. We wanted to find that, that story that had not yet been told. It, and, and especially when it deserved to be told about women who had had um, like a heroic role. Mm -hmm. Some, yeah. Someone who, uh, women who had risen to the top, but no one knew about them. And boy, did we find the idea when we, I was on a Google dive looking for an idea. And I came across a documentary about the Angels of Bataan, never, had, never, had never heard of these women. I'd only ever heard of the Bataan Death March, which, which most of us have heard of. But I had no idea that when MacArthur retreated from the Philippines and the islands fell to the Japanese, that in addition to 6,000 male prisoners of war, there were these 80 female military uniformed women who were also left behind. And um, so that right away we knew that was our premise. And because there were three kinds of nurses, Army, Navy and Filipina RNs working in concert with the Army, we knew we had our we had our girls. Oh, I That's love awesome. that. Ariel, what did you think when you first heard about it? When when Susan told you about this idea she'd come across? My first thought was, how have I not heard of these women? Yeah. I mean, yeah. all three of us, many of you have written World War II stories. And so I feel like I'm very familiar with the time period, the general war, what happened. And I had no idea. I had no idea these women existed. had no idea they'd endured this yeah. or accomplished these heroics. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason for that. And it is because when these women were finally liberated at the end of the war and brought back to the United States, the U.S. military had them sign papers saying that they would never discuss <gasps> their experience during the war because the United States military felt like it was an embarrassment to them. They'd left these women in the Philippines and they had no good way of explaining it. So what they did is said, sorry, you can't talk about it. Mm, and it was not shells. The Just end of their lives that these women really began sharing their stories and biographers started finding out about it and compiling them. Wow. Wow. Well, that, I mean, it's amazing then, even more amazing that you've told this story to keep it alive and, and to keep it um, at, at the front of our minds. Um, Christina, I know you've also collaborated recently on a children's book with your sister. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it felt like to write this, write this book, to collaborate on this book with, um, with two of your good friends? Absolutely. So we, we've been joking a lot as we've been touring around saying, and you all understand this, that, you know, that there are friends that you love until you travel with them. Yeah. <laughs> or work with them. Yeah. yeah. Or work with them or do a weekly show with them. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. we love each other. <laughs> right. And that really speaks to as a testament, doesn't it, to when you come out the other side and how the fact that you can actually love them even more. Mm -hmm. And so that yes. was the case with the three of us. We actually, you know, we've gone, become obviously way closer. And and Ariel and I had not somehow, I, I, I forgot at least, until just recently. Last that, week. So last week that that was the first time we had met in person. Oh, so wow. It's so strange because we'd known, we'd been kind of friends online for years and then going through all of this, you know, for two years, two and a half years or something, that, that we'd been Zooming and calling and texting and, yeah. and you know, it feels like a family at this point. So mm -hmm. we feel like the nurses yeah. in some ways, although we didn't have to do all the, the things like surgery and, you know, and, and war <laughs> and all those little minor things. That you did yeah. up here. Yeah. You went through it up here, right? Oh, yeah. right. right. Other than that, we're just like them. <laughs> <laughs> it's our luxurious hotel know, in right? San Diego with room service. Yes. <laughs> like, no. So, but it was amazing in the beginning when we, um, Susan brought this amazing idea to us. It was a no brainer. I mean, there was no question that we were going to write this. And, and because there were the three nurses, we're really glad that there weren't four nurses or that would be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Or two, because we have to right. vote one off the island. Right. Um, yeah. 
And so we dove in with an outline and, and then, and it changed, it adapted as we went because Susan was the first person to have an opening in her schedule in order to write her section. And, you know, we didn't write, we originally planned to write three blocks and instead, which was very smart, I think came from Susan, when she wrote that first section, she said, you guys, I think this really is going to work better if we interweave. And it was brilliant. And of course it made sense. Um, But it meant then that Susan wrote her section and then months later, Ariel had an opening in her schedule and she jumped in and wrote her character around that. And then it was my turn. (laughs) And and Ariel's so sweet and says that I landed the plane. I say I am the caboose. I'm like, oh, so I'm like, oh, this is great. And I look at him like, oh, this is such a good story that you two, you're amazing. What the heck happened to our original outline? (laughs) And the deadline's not moving. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, I liken it to, you know, down the slopes and all of a sudden there are flags that weren't there when I started. Uh, And and it was a great challenge. And I'm, you know, we ended up being really, really proud of our story. Mm -hmm. And we're, as we said, so excited, more importantly than anything, to be able to share these nurses' stories with everyone. Awesome. That's so great. Um, I actually remember the first time that the, that we got together to do like a friends in fiction retreat and we'd never all been under the same roof and it was during COVID and we were together. It was like, I mean, it was a long time. Like it was like four or five days. It wasn't like a, yeah. a weekend. It was, um, and I remember like calling someone on the way home and they were like, are y'all still friends? Like, do you still like each other? And I was like, <laughs> Amazing. We got along so well, but you really, I mean, it's a little scary because you think in theory, like, yeah. oh, we're going to work great together. And then, you know, you're putting a book out in the world together. I mean, I think it's an amazing yeah. thing that you've done. And, yeah. um, and we love this book and I am dying to talk about these nurses, um, mm-hmm. who were just so amazing each for different reasons. So I tried to figure out who wrote <laughs> which one, and I didn't cheat because I think you guys have I think you've talked about it, right? Like this is something you're willing to talk about. Who wrote? That's good. No, no secrets on friends of fiction. That's good. Nope. Um, but I would love for you to tell us about your character, why you chose her to write about, and what is it that you love about your character's journey? So, Ariel, will you start us? Yes, of course. My character is named Penny Franklin, and she is the U.S. Army nurse. And I chose the Army nurse. For two reasons. My grandfather was a lieutenant colonel during World War II in the United States Army. Wow. And my father was military police in Vietnam during wow. our, the Army. So I understand, I appreciate, I respect what the men and women of the Army endured and went through during that time. And Penny is also from Texas, which makes perfect sense for me. My husband is Texan. Both of my parents were Texan. Two of my children are Texan. I am fluent in the dialogue or the dialect. <laughs> I know the language very, very well. <clears throat> and the reason I love Penny so much is she is the first character in my writing career that I got to create from whole cloth. Oh. This book is obviously based on real people and real events, but our nurses are entirely fictional. Whereas all of my other novels, I was writing real people that really lived in history. And so I had a different challenge with them than I did with Penny, but Penny was fun because I got to make her out of nothing. And I'd never done that before. And I'm so fond of her as a result. I love that. Christina, what about you? Yeah. So my character was Lita. And um, so she's the Filipina uh, nurse. And yes, you know, being I'm half Asian, as you all know. I know you, I've hid that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Ta-da! Shocking. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> And so, um, yes, it's still my house that we call ourselves Crasians for crazy Asians. So, so we, <laughs> so her um, so Lita, it was so fun to write her because, um, first of all, her full name is Angelita, as you know from the story, and her nickname is Lita. That came from, um, I borrowed that name from the mother of my best friend growing up. So oh, my nice. friend is Filipina and her mother is Lita. And, um, and she's so she's still like an auntie to me. I grew up in that home. Um, you know, I joke, but it is true. You are not never friends with one Filipino person. You, you know, that is impossible. You are been friends with the entire family, the community. They all live within like four blocks of each other. All the aunties and uncles and cousins, everybody would get together for any excuse to eat together for every holiday. And we just graze all day long on their incredible food they prepared for days. And this was like every holiday, you know, like this is Father's Day. <laughs> it, 
Like it's New Flag Year. Day. It's <laughs> <laughs> very important holiday. So I know that that family and the culture and, you know, we'd sing karaoke. They, they say had a karaoke machine before my family did, if that tells you anything. <laughs> there you uh, and I just love that culture. So it was really fun to write Lita for a lot of reasons. Um, I made her a mestizo, which is half. So back then, especially being seen as a sort of, you know, a half breed is what they would consider them. And I, I connected with that being that I knew what it was like as a kid growing up, having a foot in both cultures, not knowing exactly where I fit in wishing that you know that you were um, for me you know wanting to look like susan you know <laughs> wanting to have blonde hair blue-eyed girl and not appreciate my differences until later in life and that's why i really love that about lita so in the story yes so lita is from the philippines and she has she's the youngest of four sisters and they are all nurses um and they've all immigrated then to the u.s and she's supposed to be next uh and that was an incredible thing that we came across that we did not know before writing mm -hmm. this story which is that the in the Philippines, after the U.S. colonized it, they started training a lot of people over there, citizens, to um, in the nursing field. And then that became a channel for immigration to the U.S. So if you suddenly are realizing, wait, I know a lot of nurses who are Filipino and Filipina, that's why. That's so when why. I when I talked to my friend Angie, um, who was giving me all of, you know, making sure my facts were right, that the culture, that the food was right, borrowing all of her cousin's names. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> They're all good characters. It was good. Um, that's when I said, I had no idea about the nursing community in the Philippines. She said, oh, yeah. She said, and she listed off, she must have listed off a dozen of her aunts and cousins that are all nurses here in the U.S. Wow. And wow. I just had no wow. idea, which is that's amazing. Great. That's great. It's always fun when we have a connection like that and someone that we're really close to that we can be like, okay, make sure, you know, make sure I got it right. Make sure I'm like always I'm constantly doing that. And, and sometimes I'm like, okay. I'm going to make this character be, you know, this because I have a friend that does that so they can make sure that I'm right. Um, yeah. That's great. All right, Susan, what about you? What about your character? Well, my character is Eleanor. She's the Navy nurse. It was an easy pick for me as well. My father-in-law was career Navy. Was He fought in Korea. My son was in the Navy. And I'm from San Diego, which is where we're coming to you today from. And San Diego is a Navy town. It was a perfect fit for me to take on Eleanor. She's a dairy farmer's daughter from Minnesota, which I am not, but I did live in Minnesota for 13 years. And um, I, I can picture her living where we lived in this little um, farm belt of Southwest Minnesota. And she comes to the story with a broken heart and she doesn't think of herself as very brave. Um, she's never been anywhere. She's never even seen the ocean ever. And she joins the Navy because she had, she, was falling in love with someone who she thought was falling in love with her too. She was greatly mistaken and it really upends her. So she joins the Navy and signs up for this um, assignment that's 8,000 miles away from home. So she's getting as far away from her heartache as she can. So her story, um, her character arc really is one of, I'm, I'm really not that uh, brave. I, I, I got my heart broken. I don't even know what love is. And um, so she, she finds out what love really looks like. And, um, and I think for all of us, that's something that when you read a, when you read a book and you have a question like that, that the character is asking, it's, you, you also find yourself asking yourself, well, do, what do I think love is? And, am I brave? And what would I do if I found myself in a situation where I had to be brave or I didn't think I could be? Yeah. You know, I think one of the, one of the strong points of this novel is that so many World War II books, historical fiction books, are set in the European theater. Not that many, it seems to me, are set in the Pacific theater, um, you know, which played a huge, huge part in the war effort. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the research for this novel because it's so immersive. I mean, we can feel the heat of the Pacific theater in Manila and in Santo Tomas and the Philippine hospital and all of the settings with three of you. How did you divide the research or did you each do your own? That's a great question. So yeah, we, we did both, yes. really. Yep. Um, all of us ended up lending each other suggestions of books that we came across and we said, oh my gosh, this would be great for you. Yeah. So I know you guys had recommended to mm -hmm. me one that would be great for Lita. Um, and we really worked off largely, we call it the Bible of our research. You know how you all know what it's like to come across right. the one 
that you that just has this most jackpot. of your answers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 and it was called Lee Band of Angels by Elizabeth Norman, and she had interviewed so many nurses oh, that before they died, mm-hmm. and sadly, the last one just passed away in 2013. Mm-hmm. So there really was no resource for us other than a few books that are out there like this that they shared their stories. Mm-hmm. So each of us typically with our Bible would heavily research the parts that impacted our specific character. It was, it was more right. helpful for and I because mm-hmm. it really focused on the Army and Navy nurses. Christina had a little bit more trouble mm-hmm. finding information about her Filipina nurses, mm-hmm. but we knew the time frame, We knew the dates we were working within, and we knew the major events that happened. And so each of us really focused on times and places that involved our character. And mm-hmm. then when it came to revisions and edits and all of that, we kind of fine-tuned and mm-hmm. helped each other. And I was able to come across a memoir written by one of the Navy nurses that um, was instrumental because the Navy nurse experience was very different than the Army nurses Mm -hmm. experience. And not as much has been written about them because they did not spend their entire time at the internment camp in Manila. They were moved in 1943 to a jungle prison camp in the middle of nowhere. And it was (sighs) difficult to find out what their experience was like. And so I'm really grateful for that memoir. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we'll have to put... um some of the uh, books, the research books you used maybe in the, uh, in the um, notes for the show. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Folks who were fascinated with this story, I think are going to want to, you know, what happens you, you, you find a book and you're so fascinated and you just fall down that rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'll mention too, with the Filipinas, as, as they said, you know, it was harder to find information on them really because they were not interviewed. Um, for the books that we read. Mm-hmm. And so what was helpful in addition to, to the Indomitable Force Finch was mm-hmm. um, that book, which was incredible. We're just going online and finding diary entries mm-hmm. and journals and, you know, family members talking about their parents who served, et cetera. So um, that, so that was helpful. Thank goodness. You know, we for all the downsides of technology and Google, <laughs> you know, that was, that was a good yeah. one is being yeah. able to find those entries that are not published in books. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It, it's one of the most fascinating things when we're writing historical fiction to be frustrated and frustrated. And then all of a sudden you find this hard to you have to find it on some used website in another <laughs> country. And somebody wrote down what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Yep. So before we let you go um, talking about this amazing book, I know that all three of you also write your own novels. And that you all either have something coming up or in your case, Christina just did. So can y'all take a minute to tell us a little bit about Christina, you first, because it just came out and I know you were on the show, but for those of those who couldn't tune in that night about your book and then Susan and Ariel, tell us what you have coming up. Cause I'm excited about all of them. I know about all of them and I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. we, we keep, we said this last night, we just did an event last night and at Warwick's and and we said, uh, genuinely, we are not tired of listening to the other talk, the other people talk about their stories because they all get yeah. so fun. We cannot wait to read the new ones. Um, yeah. So as far as mine goes, um, as you know, yes, I get to come on and do magic tricks on the show. Yeah. Which was so fun. It was so I fun. I am still seeing people show up at events around the country that I've been touring and saying, that show was so much fun. I said, <laughs> oh, great. I'll enjoy my magic trick. <laughs> Because it's it the was, only one it was an awesome magic trick, though. <laughs> it really was. I thought I had my sunglasses, my uh, trick sunglasses. Oh, I wear. Yes. Oh, yeah, I totally got my, my invisible ink still. Right. The sunglasses are very disorienting. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't think you're supposed to wear them all day or anything. So, <laughs> just so you know. Oh, that's the problem, Christina. <laughs> that's the problem. Don't drive with them for sure. They're back in black. People don't know or remember. Unless your side mirrors have been knocked off. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, about the book. Um, Yeah. So it is called The Wings We Hide. It just came out, um, gosh, what, six weeks ago or so. And it's been a little whirlwind since then. But in short, the story is about a female American illusionist who is the mastermind behind an escape show in 1942. And the reason she is so good at escape traces back to a childhood trauma she survived in Michigan's copper country known as the Italian Hall disaster. And it was it resulted from a false cry of fire in a uh, in an, like a community hall on Christmas Eve. And 73 people perished in a stampede down the stairwell, most of them children. And this is all Christmas weekend. And so 
much too sad to write an entire novel about, I thought. And then I came across um, an article that was called How Monopoly Helped the Allies Win World War II. And it was about MI9, this British military intelligence group that created escape and evade devices, what I call the go-go gadget team of British intelligence. And they smuggled things through even monopoly boards. It was incredible. They worked with magicians and illusionists. It's stranger than fiction. And so suddenly I knew I had my backstory that the character survived this stampede. She becomes obsessed with escape and she then gets recruited by MI9 and gets pulled much deeper into the war than she ever expects. So that's my story. So good. And Susan, yours is coming up. Yeah, coming up in April of 2023. It's called Only the Beautiful, and the cover is up now. It covers gorgeous. gorgeous. What I like most about it is you see mothers and children kind of dancing in the background, and there's some beautiful flowers on the outside. But then there's a tobacco sky that lets you know that not everything is right about this picture. And what the story is about is about two women who are impacted by the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. And one is here in California. She's growing up in wine country. She's an orphan. She has a sensory anomaly that we know as synesthesia now. It was not much was known about it back in the 1930s when her story takes place. So it's about her. She's young. She's only 17. And it's also about a woman who's living in Nazi occupied Vienna. She's an expat working as a nanny. So she's seeing, um, the eugenics movement from the Nazi version, which, as you know, was eugenics at its absolute worst. And we don't hear much about eugenics anymore, which is great because it was a bad idea. But in the early 20th century, it was all over the place, especially here in America. You'd be surprised at how strong the eugenics movement was in America. And it's all about creating a healthy gene pool. So it's almost like manipulating society so that only good people had children and people who are not perfect. Well, we don't want you having children. And it went so far as sterilizing people without their consent. It happened up and down um, the West Coast, the East Coast and and in the middle. And California, my home state, sterilized more people than any other state. Thirty upwards of twenty five thousand people were sterilized in a five decade period. So the story I know sounds appalling. I do want you to know that I, I don't sugarcoat anything. I want the truth to be known. I don't want the eugenics movement to be forgotten. It deserves to be remembered because we don't want to repeat mistakes of the past. But it is a book infused with hope. It's a very hopeful book. I don't want you to worry that it's too sad of a story. I, I, I will leave you satisfied, I promise. <laughs> and when does it come out? What is the date? April, April of 2023. Okay. So exciting. Mm-hmm. And explain real quick before Ariel talks about her astounding book. What is the sensory thing that your character has? What does that mean? Synesthesia is a tangling of your sensory, your, you know, your five senses. So that like if, um, if you um, hear a doorbell, you'll taste lemon on your tongue. Oh, my or, goodness. Or you might have your, um, your, your um, sensory, like your touch might be tangled with your um your hearing and hers is it's called grapheme. And so when she hears something, she sees colors. So she might hear a rooster crowing and see orange diamonds in the periphery of her mind. And it's every auditory. So it's not selective. Every auditory stimulus has a visual response. And we didn't understand it back then. It was seen as a detriment, a handicap, and definitely not something you should pass on to your children. And it is hereditary. So I'm not spoiling anything, but you can see what the trouble that she finds herself in. And so you can um, Google synesthesia. It's S-Y-N-T-H-E-S-I-A. And you'll be surprised at um, the different kinds of synesthesia there is out there. It seems like it would be kind of a difficult thing to manage. But the ones that I talk to that have it, they say it's one of the most beautiful things about their lives. Oh, wow. oh fascinating. Um, All right, Ariel, my friends. Yay, mine. I'm the caboose in this case. <laughs> my novel does not come out until November 2023, so about a year from now. It is called The Frozen River, and it is based on the life and diary of a woman named Martha Ballard. She was a midwife in the late 1700s in Maine. A couple fun facts about her. Um, She is the aunt of Clara Barton, who was the founder of the American Red Cross, and she's the great-grandmother of the first female physician in the United States. So that should tell you a little bit about the medical legacy she left for the women in her family. Talk about good genes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she herself was astounding. Martha delivered over a thousand babies in the course of her career and never lost a mother in childbirth. Oh, Doctors wow. say most of them cannot boast a track record like that. 
But the reason I'm telling her story is because for the 30 years that she was a practicing midwife, she also kept a diary at a time when many women could not read or write. And in this diary is recorded every birth, every death, every scandal, every murder that happened in her small community. And the story itself is takes place over one long, cold winter as Martha solves a very shocking murder that unravels her small community. Ooh, I cannot wait for that. Right? right? Coming bookstore near you. <laughs> <laughs> the moment you told me about that book, that story um, a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I want to read that right now. Um, the one thing I will tell you before we leave because this was so fun and it happened last night and it's kind of like the best way to kind of end our Mm -hmm. tours we were at warwick's last night talking about when we had wings and during the q a about halfway through the q a Mm -hmm. this woman raised her hand and she said i don't have a question i just want to introduce you to somebody this is my mother betty and she was a nurse in the philippines during She knew of all of our angels. She was 103 years old. Oh, my God. And and I immediately burst into tears. (laughs) The audience was crying. It was, but she put a face. Mm -hmm. She put a face on her story, and it was so wonderful to see it Mm -hmm. and to have our readers there. I think we'll be talking about Betty for a long yeah, time. She's amazing. That's and awesome. she said to me, she goes, I read seven books a week. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so what about, how, well, you know, we mentioned that the last one of the angels baton passed away in 2013. So Betty had come there. She said afterward, right after they had left. So right at the tail end of world war two. Mm-hmm. So she heard about these women also and said that everything that we said throughout our entire mm-hmm. presentation, we didn't know that we were being fact checked, which is, <laughs> incredible to pass her test and she said that everything you guys have all mentioned tonight absolutely rings true with everything i was told when i got there by the service members there about those women yeah so which gives me chills Mm -hmm. yeah amazing y'all are amazing we are so happy you joined us good luck on the road we're proud of you and everyone go get the book ladies thank you for spending time thanks ladies Bye. bye Oh, that was great. Um, well, everyone out there, we hope that you are sticking around because we have Sunday Times bestselling author Santa Montefiore coming up in just a minute. But first, we want to remind you of a couple of things, beginning with a reminder of our Writer's Block podcast with our beloved librarian pal, Ron Block. The four of us take turns hosting with him and we'll always post links under announcements each Friday on the Facebook page when a new one drops. On the most recent episode, Ron and Patty talked to Alyssa Cole and Jean Kwok about their essay, Contributions to the New Miss Marple Collection, Marple 12 New Mysteries, which is so cool. And then coming this week, Patty and Ron will talk to publishing veteran Beth Ann Patrick about her life, her new book, and her podcast, Missing Pages, with secrets of all the best publishing scandals mixed in. Y'all, these podcasts on Fridays have been extraordinary with Pulitzer Prize winners to the movers and shakers in the reading, writing, and publishing world. So y'all do not want to skip them. No, absolutely. All right. And speaking of movers and shakers in the reading, Mm -hmm, writing, and publishing world, are you guys ready? It is time to bring on our next author guest of the evening, Santa Montefiore, who is joining us from the UK and is a Sunday Times bestseller. Santa has been writing a novel a year for over 26 years, and she's still here to talk about it. (laughs) Most of her novels are set partly in England and partly in a beautiful location like Argentina, Italy, or France. She also writes children's books with her husband, Simon Seabag Montefiore. The series of four books is called The Royal Rabbits of London, about a secret society of MI5 style rabbits who live beneath Buckingham Palace and protect the royal family from evil. Love it. (laughs) Santa grew up on a farm in Hampshire and was educated at Sherborne School for Girls. She read Spanish and Italian at Exeter University and spent much of the 90s in Buenos Aires, where her mother grew up. 
She lives with her husband and two children in London, and her new novel, An Italian Girl in Brooklyn, is set to be released in Canada in just two weeks and then in the United States in the near future. So, Sean, can you bring Santa on? Welcome, Hi, Santa. Santa. Hi. Oh, you're, you're on mute, Santa. You're on mute, my friend. Um, am I on YouTube? You you're good. You can, nope, you're good. You are. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Oh, we're, we're, oh, we're just so happy to have you, I was saying. <laughs> it's nice to see you in here. The spotlight can you here, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Santa, can you're you radiant. begin by can you begin by telling us what an Italian girl in Brooklyn is about? And then our favorite question, what is it really about? Okay. So an Italian girl in Brooklyn is set in the north of Italy in Piedmont during the 1930s and 40s, and then it moves to Brooklyn. It's based on a true story. Uh, it's about a young girl called Evelina who grows up on a very dilapidated old estate in uh, a made-up called Bercellino. It's in the countryside, very sleepy. The palazzo is falling down. Her mother is bohemian narcissistic Artemisia. Her father is an anti-fascist scholar who spends most of his time studying writing. She's left her own devices and it's a very old-fashioned, sleepy way of life. And she believes that she will follow in her sister's footsteps and there'll be a sort of an arranged marriage and but she falls in love with this um the son of these Jewish textile merchants in the town and it's the 1930s um the Nazis are building their power in Germany and the racial laws are coming in nobody thinks anything like that could possibly happen in Italy and then of course the war does reach Italy racial law um come into force in the north of Italy and things heat up. I won't mm. ruin the story, but anyway, it's it's Evelyn's story. But it's based on a rather amazing true story. That's awesome. What do you, what's the book really about at its heart, Santa? Is there a theme or a message to the book? Yes, there is. There's a theme in the book um, that it's possible to love more than one person. I think love comes in many shades and colors. Uh, I think we as a society are pretty, um, when it comes to relationships, you find your, your one true love and you marry and you have children and you live happily ever after. That's free, but actually life's really complicated. I think you can love people in different ways. Um, I mean, uh, so I, somebody very close to me um, had an affair when uh, her children were young and she had her, and when she, when the children grew up, she told the daughter about it. And the daughter was about 18 years old. And they then went and had New Year's Eve together with the father, the lover, the mother, and the daughter was in all together. And this, and I'm talking to this young woman and she was, you know, there was my father with the man who'd had an affair with his wife. And yet they were all, getting on very well and that that is quite something um, you know uh that it is possible for that that to happen wow. so i think it's really about the many different depths and color and shades and that love is complicated yes, yes absolutely. absolutely now you alluded in the author's note and just now to this book that this this story was inspired in part by a man named Jonas Prince, who you met at a dinner party in London and who shared his mother's story with you. Could you talk to us a bit about the real story at the heart of this novel and why you chose to set the fictional version in Italy rather than in Mr. Prince's mother's native Poland? Okay, so uh, I'm friends with Jonas Prince's son and daughter-in-law and I was at a dinner party sat next to him. he's incredibly charming and handsome by the way so I was having a really nice time and he <laughs> told, that doesn't he hurt told me his, no that doesn't hurt that that was really lovely um sitting next to somebody so charming but anyway he told me his mother's story and at that point he knew I was a writer but I didn't realize that as he was talking about the story I was my eyes were getting bigger and bigger and I was thinking this would be the most story. So his mother grew up in Poland. The young man that she loved uh, was also Polish, they're Jewish, and the war came. They were both sent off to Auschwitz. Um, I can't mm. tell you 
the the little nuggets of story because the nuggets of the story which I then use for my own story um, are true. I created obviously the world and the characters and everything, but it's 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 this extraordinary happening Amazing. to his mother that I have used. The reason I couldn't face it in Poland that I don't understand Polish culture. I don't know many Polish people. I certainly couldn't get under the skin of the country in order to set the scene and the world. Um, you really have to know a place very well. You need to know what it smells like, sounds like, feels like, and how people live in sort of day-to-day -day world. So uh, I sat on the story. I asked him, I said, you know, I would love to write this story one day. And he said, well, you can write it when my mother passes away. Um, I wasn't sure whether I'd ever be able to write it because as um, as the years went by, his mother passed away, but as the years went by, I realized that not being a Jewish woman myself, although my husband is Jewish and I converted and I married him, so I, I understand the Jewish culture, but I could not woman's journey through Nazi prison camp in World War II. I couldn't yeah. do it. I read Primo Levi's book, if, um, if the this is a man, I think it's called, which is extraordinary, powerful, heartbreaking, really, really hard book to read. And, you know, you just start reading a book like that. And as a writer, it's like, I can't even go there. Not because it's dark. It is too dark for me to go to, to be honest. But because I couldn't presume to put myself in the shoes of somebody who has suffered that. It just felt wrong. So I yeah. sat on this story for really years actually I knew in the back of my head oh, wow. that I wanted to write about it because the complex characters and the was, was so fascinating but I thought how could and then um I was going through my bookcase and I came across an old book called Gone the Vinci Contini that I'd studied at university in Italian it's by George Sami and it's set in the north of Ferraro and it's about a Jewish family and it was then that I thought oh my god I can write it about the north of Italy um that would be perfect and then the whole thing started together and I thought well Evelina uh she won't be Jewish as will be Jewish and then things started falling into place and then I got wildly overexcited and started writing it that's awesome right. that uh, sometimes we can put our stories on the back burner mm -hmm. of our subconscious and eventually like nothing is ever lost we think I won't do that idea because of this. And then it simmers and simmers. And one day yeah. you pull it out and there's like this pot of soup. Yeah, because sometimes the time isn't right or your experience, you don't have the right experience mm -hmm. to do it justice. I mean, I could never have written this book 15 years ago. Um, this is a book that worked for me right now because I'm older and wiser. I understand people and nature, love, uh, in a way that I didn't when I was maybe in my late 20s, early 30s. So I'm 52 now. I have more experience of the world. So the timing was right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And your husband, Simon Seabag Montefiore, is also a very well-known and well-respected writer whose nonfiction bestsellers include Stalin, The Court of the Red Czar, and Jerusalem, The Biography, I would love if you would talk to us about the children's Royal Rabbit series you write together. I just love the whole yeah. premise <laughs> of it, as well as a bit about whether you influence each other's individual work and what it's like to be one half of a power couple of two of the most well-known writers in the UK. Well, okay, so writing a book together... Do admire those three girls who you've been talking to because actually writing a book with somebody else can be really difficult because you're very perceptive of what you do. And I think if my husband and I decided to write a, a grown-up fiction together, that would be complicated. It wouldn't work because we both feel very in, in control of what we do and therefore to step aside and allow the other person to write over maybe what the other has done, it could be quite complicated. But because it was a children's book, neither of us had done a children's book before. So I think we were very open to suggestions from each other. We we didn't feel proprietorial over the bits that we were writing. We were very happy for each other to say, actually, this doesn't work, let's try that. Whereas with my grown-up fiction, I don't want anyone to interfere with it. I feel I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so it's basically, it was my 
six-year-old son who couldn't sleep one night. And I said, well, think of something you love. And he said, rabbits. And I said, where do they live? He said, under Buckingham Palace. And it was like, <clears throat> oh my <laughs> gosh, that's so great. Yeah, really so cute. <laughs> They're legendary. And then, you, you know, you have so much fun with the world because they start off in Camelot as the rabbits of the round table back in Arthur's Day. And you create the world and why they pledge their allegiance to the crown and how they've evolved to become the royal rabbits founded in Buckingham Palace. Um, and we have our little country rabbit, Shire, who wears an eye patch because of a, a squint. Um, and he's a very weak and feeble rabbit, but he shows great courage. And he has to Aww. find these legendary rabbits and he has to, you know, win them over to help him uh, solve plot to harm the queen. And it's a, it's a really fun series of books. And it's with Disney at the moment. Hopefully will become an animated movie. Oh, it was with oh, I hope so. Awesome. I'm trying to read these myself. Like, forget. Yeah. So cute. Like, where oh, were these when Will was we five have... and I was reading? Ugh, not oh, not. this is so awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think when have... I think here about you saying that you can interact with your husband writing that, part of me was like kind of defensive, like I could never do that. But you're right with our, with adult fiction, that's different, but something fun like that, yeah. I think it would be really interesting. Yeah. To I think it's also forward. great because he brings stuff to the table that I can't do. So because he's um, yes. he's got a very different mind to mine. So he's really sort of quirky. So for example, the Ratsies, Papa Ratsy is the kingpin of these <laughs> camera wielding <laughs> super rats. Um, and they, I, you know, when we were thinking where these super rats live and I thought well, under the Bank of England, it's all greasy and drippy and wet and moldy. There's no, much cooler there at the top of the yard, the tallest building in London. And have super cool offices wherever gleaming and they have the latest technology and the gym of course they're all fat and fit. so the gym is where you know they butcher rats who don't you know, um do what they're meant to be doing and so the running machine for the rats is like a terrible torture in um so he sort of he had these really quirky ideas. so he does we're very good um at sort of ideas around and everything i mean it's been fun and it's a totally different thing to writing yeah. an adult book and actually much harder i would much rather my my adult novels than write one of the children's books if it's about work because there's no effort at all to write grown-up books to write the kids books you know it's there's so much you have to consider because you're writing about children so you know we had the foxes in the fox club in 10 downing street they look after the government and of course in the fox club well, they were all drinking bailey's irish cream where you can't have alcohol and children so you know there is, that's just a little example, but there are a lot of things that you have to be quite mindful when you're writing a children so it was a very different skill yeah absolutely awesome. yeah it sounds so fun <laughs> it makes me want to write it but i love that it's like if you want to write a children's book who do you who do you go to for the idea a child like, yeah yes. yes. totally totally yes. like, Yes, yeah. and actually we did use them because both our children read the first book and were really helpful because I said, you've got to let me know when you're bored, um, if you know you don't like something or you like something. So they were really quite helpful, actually. Um, sure. The most important thing with children is just to keep them interested all the time. So you've got to keep mm -hmm. the action going. You've got to, you know, you can't be too wordy. You can't be too descriptive. Um, and of course, the yeah. message has no to be introspection. <laughs> No, not too much, a little bit. But on the whole, you know, it's it's got to be about courage, all the virtues. You know, we were very, it's very anti-mobile telephones and it's all about, you know, being brave and being courageous, being curious about life and not sitting on your phones all the time. And getting and reading, of course. The the main character loves books and collects books and newspapers and things. And, you know, we just wanted all the stuff that we didn't like about the children, the culture around and all just putting them in front of iPad things all the time. We kind of wanted to have us about that. That's great. Well, um, switching gears just a little bit, um, I, we were all so fascinated by this. Two weeks after the death of Queen Elizabeth II in September, you wrote a beautiful tribute to her on Facebook by telling a personal story about a time seven years ago that you and your husband were invited for a dine and stay at Windsor Castle with the Queen and Prince Philip. It was so touching because it wasn't a story about royalty. It was a story about a woman's love for dogs and the fact that this woman, one of the most well-known women in the world, remembered your mother's 
dogs and asked about them. Your words hit me right in the heart because they spoke so clearly about who the queen truly was as a human being. And because I'm a brand new dog lover. <laughs> she's a new convert. New yeah, she's a new puppy. Yeah, I am a new oh. puppy. I've never had one before. And now I'm like, I get the fuss now. I understand what <laughs> nutty about their dogs because um, now I'm one of those people. So can you tell us that story? Yes. So my husband um, was asked for, it's called a dine and stay where you go and stay at Windsor Castle. Um, you arrive at tea time and you have a tea and then you go into your room, come back, dress for your evening events. And it's, uh, it's some drinks and then you have dinner and it's 12 guests who the Queen the Duke of Edinburgh wanted to meet. My husband already had met the Duke of Edinburgh on numerous occasions, um, really because one or two times socially, but he was helpful with my husband on the books, the Romanov sample that he was wrote at the time. And just he loved history. So they had a lot to talk about. So he invited Seabag and went at his plus one. And I thought of going at his plus one. I'm not the important person. I'm not the invited person. I'm just going because my husband's there. So I thought, well, I'll be sitting at the end of the table with an Aquarian, a lady in waiting, and I'll be fine about that. <laughs> um, and so we arrive and we go to, we showed our suite of rooms. And of course, in the royal households, the husband and wife are always separate bedrooms and you share a bathroom. So my husband had his bedroom. I have, and you have a little note on the dressing table that says, your maid is Shirley. So have a lady who comes in and unpacks for you, which is very nice. And comes and says, would you like your dress pressed and sort of thing. Um, anyway, we went down to have tea and we and the Duke of Edinburgh come in and meet everybody. And as they're going and shaking hands and you're dropping to your curts, she says to me, I drop and I say, hello, your majesty. And she does your mother still have those big dogs? Now, my mother used to stay at Balmoral because the, prince, the then Prince of Wales, now the king, is a family friend. So um, she, my parents stayed at Balmoral quite a lot um, back in the day. And the queen, as you know, obsessed with dogs. And I think my mother and she probably talked a lot about the St. Bernard's that my mother always had. And I thought that was amazing that A, she would know, she would have been briefed definitely about that I was their daughter. So she would, but the fact that she sort of remembered the dog thing, it just goes to show that she really, you know, did love dogs. And I think also for her, it was always difficult talking about anything that could be repeated and taken the wrong way. So I think she was always very mindful of keeping off politics, keeping off opinions, yeah. um, you know, so, so it was really a minefield when she met people, which is probably why she didn't say too much. Uh, but if she talked about dogs or horses, she could say whatever she wants. She wasn't gonna get into yeah. trouble. Um, so we had this conversation about the dog, how he used to drool everywhere. So we had towels in every room in the house. So you'd sort of catch the drool, and I told her a really funny story about my mother's latest dog, who bit a cyclist. It wasn't very funny for the cyclist. <laughs> he ended up suing my parents, which wasn't great. Oh, no. But um, the dog, yeah, and it's a farm, and he's around the right of way. But anyway, the dog, he's a huge dog. Um, anyway, the queen thought that was fabulous. She definitely took the side of the dog. Um, <laughs> and she was so sweet and so funny. And his blue eyes just really twinkly sparkly lively lively Aww. blue eyes she was absolutely wonderful and that night at dinner i saw you, you the plasma in your bedroom and i was sitting next to the duke of edinburgh actually he's rather lovely now looking back on it because he's sadly no longer and i got to sit next to him at dinner but i sat opposite the queen as well so it was it was a really surreal moment i was kind of sitting there thinking uh, i can't really believe this is happening uh, but the the stories that he liked the most were about awful book tours about arriving at places and there's no one there literally and there's one person in the back row and you fall on that person say you're my only fan and they say well actually I'm just here waiting for my wife and kids to finish shopping because you know there's a bookshop next <laughs> and door do you know where the ladies room is yeah 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 those sort of, oh God, you've had that one too Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Santa, that's such a great story. I'm so glad you shared that with us. It's, um, 
you know, I, I think we were really reminded just in in the days and weeks after her death, so many people had stories like that, just about her warmth and, and the human yeah. side of her. And it's just, it, it's extraordinary that you had those moments. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. It was, was lovely, you know, now that she's longer, it's really lovely to be able to, you know, tell my children, that's all their grandchildren, you know, she was a real icon actually. But quite scary. I mean, frightening, you know, your heart's going because yeah. she's the queen but actually she's, she was very warm and there, there was something really sweet about her. that's awesome oh that's I really nice that. yeah. <laughs> Santa oh. you know we talked about how an Italian girl in Brooklyn um, is coming out in just two weeks in Canada so those lucky Canadian readers it's already out in the UK but readers in the states are going to have to wait a little bit longer for us so in the meantime for readers out there who have fallen in love with you on this broadcast, as we all have, can you tell us um, where we should start in reading your backlist? How should we get to know Santa Montefiore in the meantime? Okay, so I think the Daryl Chronicles, which is, uh, it's three books set in Ireland in Cork, uh, starting in 1900 and it goes up to the 80s. It's a trilogy. The first one, they have different titles in the UK. So the first one is called The Irish Girl, the second one, Daughters of Ireland, and I think the third one is Last Secret of the Devils. Um, they are available on Amazon and in bookshops and things like that. Um, there are more Deverell books to come that have come out in the UK, but they haven't come out in America yet. So I think if people don't know my work and would like to read something, um, then I think that it's historical fiction, um, a big Anglo-Irish family, big castle, um, ghosts and spirits. I love my ghosts and spirits. So it's got a bit of the supernatural in there too, but it's, uh, it's three big books and that's quite fun. So maybe that's what to go for. You, I think you've had us all at Ireland. We, I, we I think you've had us at Irish Girl. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. Now, Santa, if you don't mind hanging around, we want to ask you one more question um, that we all love diving into, but we're just going to get to a couple of our quick announcements first. Right. Well, you know, we've had quite a night already, yeah. but it's not over. I want to talk about us because this year we all have books coming out in 2023. I know it seems forever away, but it's not. Um, so we are going to have at least four Friends in Fiction live events this coming year, one during each one of our um, book tours and probably a bonus event or two so as well. So stay tuned for news about those and you can mark your calendars and make your travel plans to join us as we take our show on the road beginning in the spring. Oh, sorry, I was <laughs> muted, but y'all could not hear me. Um, and part of the celebration for our four new releases is our new Friends in Fiction first edition club. And here's how it works. So you order now from one of our favorite indie bookstores, Booktown. That's Booktown with an E on the end. And you will receive on pub day a signed first edition hardcover of each of our books. And with the first, you get an adorable Friends in Fiction kitchen towel that says, dinner can wait. It's time for Friends in Fiction. The only way to get this towel is through the first edition club and it will not be available any other way. So May is Patty's The Secret Book of Flora, Flora Leah. June is my book, The Paris Daughter. July is Christie's Summer of Songbirds. And September is Mary Kay's super secret project. Um, so you can order from Booktown right now at booktown.com. That is Booktown with an E at the end. All right, Santa, you are up one more time. We love this question. And with your fascinating background, we're curious, what were the values around reading and writing in your childhood? Okay, so writing, I wrote as a child um, just because I loved it. So I was always writing something. And uh, my parents always encouraged me to write. I think it was the only thing I could do because I'm illiterate when it comes to numbers. I can't count even on my hands. So we writing was hugely them. encouraged. <laughs> yeah. You're often either one or the other. Anyway, so my brother stole the maths genes and I stole <laughs> the writing genes without question. So, and also books, my father used to read, um, uh, he read all the Wind in the Willows, Winnie the Pooh, um, Oscar Wilde, you know, those children's stories, fairy tale things. Um, he was always reading every night. It was a big thing Daddy would read to us. And he put all the voices, you know, Winnie the Pooh, had a voice like that. And he was, you know, I remember that so well. So reading was always a big part of my growing up. And writing was just massive encouraged. But I actually didn't need anyone to encourage 
me. It was, as you all know, your writers do. It's something you are. You just, it's yes. part of your, your makeup. And you have this compulsion to express what you feel and think in writing all the time. So I think we're yeah. probably very similar like that. It's just, it's just who we are. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Santa, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was such a pleasure talking with you and yes. finding out a little bit more about who you are tonight. It was nice to nice to get to know you and hear about your new book and some of your backlist and um, some of these amazing stories you have. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank, well, thank you. Santa. you so I'm not much. going to forget. It's who you are. I like that. A yeah, lot. it's who yes. you are. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just who we are. It's not what we become. We don't become it, we are it. I love that. Absolutely. But anyway, good luck for your books. And thank you so much for including me. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Santa. Thank you. you. Okay, everyone out there, remember you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. God, what a great night. We are live on YouTube every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe and hit the little bell at the top, you won't miss a thing. So be sure to come back right here next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Wanda Morris. Good night, y'all. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.